Well, this morning's a, a little different. I'll be preaching a little earlier than normal right now. So if you'll open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 3, uh, we'll be reading verses 9 through chapter 4, verse 1. And uh, then we'll respond to God's Word with prayer and giving and a more extended time of singing. So we'll be reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 9 through 4, 1, okay? Let's read this now. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. O Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Audrey, my wife, uh, she hates a lot of my favorite movies. When I try to get her to watch them with me, she'll say, no, that's a boy movie. And that's what she calls them, boy movies. So I guess the kind of movies she likes are are, uh, girl movies. Uh, And if you read the synopsis of any one of her favorite movies... Uh, I can almost guarantee that there's one word you'll find on every single one of them, a word that is conspicuously absent from uh, what she calls boy movies. That word is love. And I think that this is helpful for us to see a few distortions we have in our thinking when it comes to love. Uh, On one hand, it's not an idea that appeals much to men in our culture. For some reason in our culture, in many circles, love has become contrary to masculinity. And expressing love can make men feel uncomfortable. And I'm sure it's not just our culture because I think maybe that's why Paul, when he was giving commands to people who are married, uh, to men and women in in Ephesians, he, he tells women to submit and respect. He tells men to love because we need to hear that. As men here, we need to learn to embrace love. We follow a man who is the embodiment of love. It's not something we can neglect. All of us, men and women, are called to love. So we must seek to understand it biblically. But a biblical understanding will also confront uh, that maybe that other side, that uh, typical Hollywood depiction of love, which has shallow roots in the fickle soil of emotions and and this so-called love that is affection without conviction, reserved for only the closest relationships on earth, and that somehow it, this, it both elevates romantic relationships to a, a level of ultimate meaning in life while also cheapening them because they are built on love that is always earned and therefore disposable. 
This, is, this kind of love is something you fall into, something that happens to you, built on foundations of, of pride and lust and comfort, and rarely embodies compassion and grace and truth and sacrifice. And just like last week, I want us to see that biblical love is expressed in certain ways because it has deep roots and firm foundations. Our faith is worked out in love. And believing certain grand realities forms us into the kind of people who love others in ways that correspond to those great truths. And this is what I want to address from this text this morning. So first, a little context. This, this, this book, First Thessalonians, it has these two main sections to it, or two movements The first is a celebration of these Thessalonian believers and their faithfulness to Jesus. And the second is, in in the second section, Paul is challenging them to keep growing as followers of Jesus. And these two sections in this book are surrounded by prayers, one in the beginning, one in the middle, one at the end. And this section that we're looking at this morning has that middle transitional prayer that links these two sections together. And this, in this prayer, he introduces the topics that he'll be talking about in the rest of the letter, which I think is kind of cool. He's praying that God will grow their capacity to love and, and strengthen their commitment to holiness as they fix their hope on the coming of King Jesus. <clears throat> in this little prayer, we can learn some important things about love. And I want to begin by looking at what it means for holiness. Because he brings up holiness in this prayer, which is an important topic for us. So I want to ask you a question. What is the essence of holiness? Is it looking like you have it all together and always doing the right thing? Is it waking up early on a Sunday morning or a weekend to sing and and study the scriptures together in a church building? Is it staying away from the wrong types of people or activities? Many of you have heard that Holy, to be holy means to be set apart, which is true. But what does Jesus say will radically set us apart? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's love that sets us apart. Radical love, love that lays down your life for your brother, love for your neighbor as you love yourself, love that blesses and prays for your enemies. Christ-like love sets us apart. Love is the essence of holiness. And we see it clearly in this text when he prays that the Lord may make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. He's saying, Lord, cause them to abound in love so that they will be holy. If you want to see this even more clearly, just read 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul points out all these ways by which people were judging their holiness. And he says it's all worthless without love, right? He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I have all faith, so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Love is essential to holiness. True holiness is rooted in love, and true love is rooted in faith. 
And you can see that Paul views this faith and love closely related in verse 6. When he, if you look up a little bit earlier from our text, verse 6 he says, When Timothy brought us good news of your faith and love. The nature of biblical love is an outworking of faith in Christ. And as we grow in the right kind of faith, we will grow in love. And that growth in love is what this prayer of Paul in this text is all about, right? We see Paul pray that their love may abound more and more. And I love that because it wasn't that they were unloving. He's not praying this because they were unloving. He saw their their love. And he wanted it to abound more and more. Biblical love is ever-increasing. There's always room for growth. They weren't perfect in love or they wouldn't have needed to increase. And that's why I feel confident talking to you about this this morning. I know you haven't arrived. I have been personally like the recipient of your love as a church. I've been encouraged and refreshed through your love. And yet I know that it can increase. And I pray with Paul that it will not only increase, but abound. And this is why the Bible says we meet together to help each other love more and better. Right in Hebrews 10, where it says not to forsake gathering together as some do, it says it tells us that when we do gather together, we're to stir one another up or provoke one another to love and good works. You've probably heard the term holy huddle. It's usually used, it's like a, usually like a negative term to describe believers who limit their love and their social experiences to only other believers within church walls. But I actually love that phrase, holy huddle. I think it really captures what we are to be about when we gather, because what is a huddle? It's where a team gathers together, they amp each other up, plan together, then put their hands in and break and go out and do what they're supposed to do. And that's a wonderful analogy for a Hebrews 10 gathering. The problem is if you stay in the huddle and never get back to the game, that would be ridiculous, right? Because look at how Paul prays. He prays that their love would abound for one another, yes, and for all. It's so important to catch that. Jesus says, if you love only your brother, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Our bringing love, the love of Christ to the outsider, is vital to following Christ and fulfilling our mission. But what is even more vital is the work of God among us. Love is a result of the work of God in us. And believing this profoundly shapes our love. Paul prays in verse 12, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love. It is God who does this. God produces love and makes it abound in his people. This makes us utterly dependent on him. Like Jesus said in John 15, that apart from me, you can do nothing. But we know, of course, through him we can do all things. This means that God gets the glory for our love. It means that we need him and his power at work in us to love the way we ought to love. But it does not mean that we are completely passive. Look at verse 13. He says, so that he may establish your hearts. If you have a whole minute, it says make your hearts. If you have the NIV, it's translated strengthen. The word there in Greek is sterizo. It means to set fast, to turn resolutely in a certain direction. Like in Luke 9, it's used of Jesus when the days drew near for him to be taken up. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
He's turned toward Jerusalem resolutely to do what he came to do. My point is that when God works in us to produce this loving holiness, it's manifested in a a Holy Spirit-empowered resolve to move forward in love. It is anything but passive. In fact, James commands us using the same word by saying, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. My point is that believing that God is at work in us makes us resolute in our love. We know that, that we know, right, that love has this bad habit of being taken advantage of. And it also has a habit of doing hard things and doing unseen things. And all of this combined makes it something that's easily given up on. We need, to, we need resolve to stand firm in love. We need to be empowered to be resolute in our love. And when we are believing that it is God himself who is at work in and through our love, it gives us strength to endure in love because it means there's power in it. There's this, there's this passage, this really amazing and challenging passage I've been reflecting on in, in, in Romans 12 that tells us not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. And in the verses before that, he tells us what that looks like. Here's a few samplings of what he says. He says, seek to show hospitality, which is a Greek word meaning love of stranger. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. So far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. And if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Now, this way of living challenges our feelings of fairness. Doesn't it? But, but it is rooted in belief, in believing that God is a powerful judge first, but more than that, that he is powerfully at work to overcome evil through good, through love, through our love. This way of living is more powerful than we give it credit for. And sometimes more powerful than we can see. It is how we conquer evil with good. But if we believe that God is working in us and bringing about this faith and love, it will naturally lead us, I think, to ask him for it. To pray for it to abound, as Paul does here in this text. Believing that God gives faith that is worked out in love, That his spirit alive in us is the power by which we live lives of love for brother and stranger and enemy. This makes us dependent on him, which should lead us to pray, seeking his power, asking him to do this in our lives and in the lives of others. And I I love how Paul prays this, uh, the way he says it. He says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. And personally, uh, reading the prayers of Paul and trying to pray like him has marked a shift in my own prayer life. I used to uh, pray, you know, frequently, uh, help me uh, do this, help me be this, help them, such and such. And I still do that, but in, a, in, a, in place of a lot of those helps, I now say, make. Make me do this. Make them become this. 
Make me become this. You, you, you feel the difference, don't you? It captures his power and his sovereignty much more. It, rather than help by your power, Lord, make this happen. And it's humbled me before my powerful God, and it's given me more assurance and peace. And, and if we believe that this is true that for us and true for others, I mean, really believe it. It will make us much more given to prayer for others. And much more given to proactive prayer, right? Because most of our prayers are reactive, which are still wonderful prayers. Prayers like, like thank you, and help me, and I'm sorry. And, 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 and this, is, this, though, is a proactive prayer from Paul. And proactive prayer for others, like he is doing here, is a beautiful and powerful form of love. But it's not usually the kind of prayer we give ourselves to. The preacher, the old, he's old and dead preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he was once talking to other pastors, and he was being kind of funny and, and pointing out the fact that we sometimes fall into only praying for people who are sick or in crisis. And he said, when a man is upstairs in bed and cannot do any hurt, you pray for him. When he is downstairs and can do no end of mischief, you do not pray for him. Is this wise and prudent? His point is that we should be praying proactively and interceding for all people. And as he's pointed out, there's perhaps even more reasons to pray for people who aren't sick. Intercession is a mark of true Christian love. And I long for it to be a hallmark of this church, our church. And it's rooted in a belief. It's rooted in belief that, as Paul says in Philippians, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And believing in this pleasure of God is also has profound implications for our love, which is my next point. That believing that God is pleased by our love leads to love that is genuinely affectionate. We see Paul's genuinely affectionate love for these believers here. Like he, talks, he talks about the great joy that he feels before, for their sake before God. And, and if you go back to that Romans 12 passage that I was talking about, Paul exhorts them to let their love be genuine. And then one of the very first things he says about what genuine love looks like is to love one another with brotherly affection. I've heard so many times, I love them, I just don't like them. Right? But what kind of love is that? It's not the kind of love we're called to. It's not genuine love. Genuine love is marked by brotherly affection, meaning we like them. We have affection for them. You see, this, you see love, real love is more than a choice. Some people, in, an, in, an effort, in, a, in a valiant effort to correct this false view that love is just a feeling that happens to you, they'll say love is a choice. And I commend the spirit behind that slogan. I agree that love is a commitment that holds you fast even when you don't feel like it. But it's possible to overcorrect here and go too far in the wrong direction. Because if love is only a choice, it's incomplete. It's not yet what God intends it to be. Because his own love for us is not a cold-hearted choice. In verse 1 of chapter 4, it tells us, in this text, it tells us that our love is the occasion of God's pleasure. And then in verse, he takes pleasure in us. Psalm 149 says he takes pleasure in his people. And, and Zephaniah 3 says he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's beautiful. 
Jesus doesn't just choose to love you without liking you. He loves you and he likes you. His love is action and commitment as well as heartfelt affection towards you. And the more we understand this and believe this, the more it will shape our love. Because you you may see some things about other people that bother you and make you dislike them, but God sees that stuff too. He sees it in them and he sees it in you. He sees every deep, dark secret and bad habit and annoying trait that you don't think you have but really have. And he loves you with great affection. And it may seem impossible for you to to feel like you can love in this way. But that's kind of the point. The love that we are called to, the life that we are called to as Christians, is not possible in our own strength. It's more rich and deep than that. It's about our heart and affections and desires. And that's why that first point that I made is so important, that this, be, this being God's work in us. We are not called to do something we can do on our own. We are called to be wholly dependent on God who can change our hearts as we look to him. And there is, this ba- there is this baseline, unconditional love that is unmerited, unearned. It is grace, the gift of God's love. But there are ways that we are called to live in which the Bible says, please God. That is what Paul is saying here when he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Just as you are doing that you do so more and more. There is a way to walk to please God. That's not to say that he takes no pleasure in us otherwise. But if you think of God as a father, which he tells us to do, then it makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Because a good father loves his children, has affection for them always, even whenever they are messing up and falling short. But when they're living admirably and safely and well, It brings the Father pleasure in a great different way. And this is true of our Heavenly Father as well. When we grasp this, it will lead us to, as Paul said, do this more and more. To find joy in in the love expressed by our brothers and sisters because we know that it's bringing pleasure to our, our amazing God that we love so much. And to encourage it and pray for this love to increase and abound more and more and to seek opportunities in our own lives for our own love to increase and abound. See, we'll have this holy discontent. We won't be complacent because we live to please our amazing God whom we love so much because he has loved us so much. And as we pursue this greater love, it will take us in directions we would not normally go. And that leads me to my last point, that faith and hope in the return of our king produces love that endures and takes risks. The end of verse 13 frames this whole discussion by saying, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In fact, if you read this whole letter of 1 Thessalonians, two of the dominating themes of this letter are are the return of Jesus and perseverance. 
This is because when Jesus returns, he will usher in glory that is so great that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with it, as Paul says in Romans 8. This hope, it both strengthens us in trials and it frees us to live with radical abandon. When I talk about risk-taking love, I mean this willingness to lose and, and give up temporary things for the sake of eternal things. There is this amazing picture of this in Hebrews 10 uh, that shows what I mean. In Hebrews 10, uh, the author gives us a powerful picture of the Hebrew Christians that he's writing to who loved others in this beautiful way. And, And the hope, he tells us what hope they had that formed the foundation for this kind of love. He says this, For you had compassion on those in prison, And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because the realities of their treasures in heaven and their ultimate victory with their returning king had broken into their lives with such amazing conviction that they could have joy in their sufferings as they loved others sacrificially. Friends, Jesus Christ is coming again. Let that truth move you and shape you to love the way he loved you. And he loved you sacrificially. He gave up his comfort, his wealth, his status, his life. Because he knew with great confidence that the fruit of his love would endure, would last. And that he would get the final triumphant word. And we share this belief with him. And this shared belief with Jesus, it empowers us. It empowers us to persevere in life, even through trials and hardships. I think the reason Paul talks so much in this letter about love and endurance and hardship is because he knows that there are few things that tempt us towards self-centeredness, like going through a trial or suffering. That's why when he was discipling this church before he left them, he said that he was preparing them for suffering. And and then when he hears that they are actually facing afflictions, he fears that this is going to derail their faith, and so he sends Timothy to them. And listen to what he says. He said, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now, Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love. So when Timothy returns to Paul... He tells him of their great faith and love. And Paul is rejoicing because he knows the temptations that come with affliction and how they can either be, on one hand, the occasion for strengthened faith and a powerful expression of love, or they can shipwreck faith and draw people toward bitterness and self-pity and fear and self-centeredness. And Paul prays that the faith... Paul, Paul... He's he's saying that the the faith that undergirds their perseverance through these afflictions is this hope in the return of Jesus Christ. 
He describes their conversion at the beginning of the letter like this. He says that they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. And we too are continually to turn to God from our idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. This waiting on God, it's it, it resonates with the Psalms, which like, it's like Psalm 40 with where the, uh, he's in a pit and he says he waited patiently for the Lord who inclined to him and heard his cry. But Paul gives more weight to this, to this waiting. <laughs> he, he says that we're waiting on the coming of the Son of God who will remove evil and suffering from this world and renew it and restore this broken world and our broken humanity. And we live in light of this great truth. We live toward this great truth. We establish our hearts in faith in the coming of our Lord. And if we are not grounded and rooted in faith, then when afflictions come, we will be tossed around. In fact, there's great barriers to all these forms of love that we are called to. Love that is resolute, love that's affectionate, love that takes risks and endures. So much will get in our way if we let it. There's ingratitude and difficult people. There's people who take advantage and the bitterness that comes along with that. There's distractions in our life, so many distractions of busyness, distractions of leisure, there's, there's afflictions and trials that tempt us and draw us inward rather than outward. And this is why I'm telling you that this love must have deep roots in the faith, in, in, in faith, in the truth of who God is. I once went on a trip to uh, Honduras to teach at a leadership center. And the guy who ran the center picked us up at the airport and, and drove us out into the mountains where the center was. And I was commenting on the scenery, and he was explaining that just a few years earlier, these sparse hills were once dense with evergreen trees. But the mountain pine beetle laid waste to this once scenic area. And when I got home, I was so curious, I read up on these beetles. And I learned that they like to live under the bark of the tree, and they only really become a severe threat after things like drought or pollution or overseeding or underpruning and other environmental stressors have weakened the overall health of the trees. But in situations like this, we're tempted to focus on the thing directly responsible, this beetle. And we're tempted to assume that simply by eradicating this pest, all will be made right. But that way of thinking misses the mark. We're constantly tempted to assume that the main thing keeping us from loving the way we ought is the stressful or frustrating events or people in our lives. But like the pine beetle, these difficulties are always around us. They only start to disrupt our calling when we are distracted or weakened by a lack of faith and spiritual health. If we fight the fight of faith and look to Jesus in utter dependence and live and love in the strength he provides and cultivate a healthy relationship with him, trusting him with our life, 
then we will be strengthened to live out who he is calling us to be, to fend off these negative intrusions and overcome evil with good, overcome difficulties and oppression with love, overcome our own sin with love. And this is the pathway to holiness, faith working through love, faith in God who is at work in us, and working out that faith with resolute love that intercedes for others. Faith in God who finds pleasure in you and finds pleasure in your love. And working out that faith in love that is ever increasing with brotherly affection. Faith in our King Christ who is coming again to restore this broken world. And working out that faith in love that endures and takes risks. This is the holiness God desires of us. And so now as we close, I think it's fitting to take a few moments of intentional corporate prayer. I want to invite our praise band to come up as we worship through this time of prayer. This, this is something uh, new that we'll do each week this year. It won't always be right after the sermon like today. But we're going to recommit to intentional prayer together as a church. And we'll have rhythms to the ways we praise. We'll be alternating each week between four categories of prayer. We've developed a prayer calendar that we will make available next week on our website. So you can see what we'll be praying for each week. And the four categories are these. Our spiritual formation as a church. We want to ask God to make us who he has called us to be. We need his work to do this. Second category, another local church in our area because they are our brothers and sisters. We're not in competition. We want them to flourish. Third, an international people group because this is a global God we serve and he's given us a mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And fourth, issues of great brokenness, evil, or need because this world is broken. We want God to intervene in these areas. So we'll pray for one of these a week, something specific within one of these categories. These are things that we are called to care about, called to pray about. And as we've seen this morning, this is a powerful form of love that we are called to in Jesus. It's an expression of our belief that God is at work. Practically, what this will look like is we will introduce the topic of our prayer, spend a few moments of silent prayer together as a church, and then whoever's facilitating that time will close us by leading in prayer. And today, we will follow this time of prayer by giving our tithes and offerings. So this morning, we'll be praying in that first category of our spiritual formation as a church. And I think it's fitting to pray for a particular virtue of, that we have talked about a lot, which is contagious love. Pray for yourself and for our church as a whole and for particular people that, come, that God puts to your mind that their love will increase and abound and that it would be contagious. So take the next 30 seconds of silent prayer and I'll close this. Let's pray.
Lord, I pray that you would make us increase and abound in love for one another and for all. So that you may establish our hearts blameless in holiness before you, our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And we pray in his holy and wonderful and loving name. Amen.